This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer squad, and we're heading into the holiday season just as the tridemic is getting worse. Doctors are warning that the crisis is shifting from children to older adults, and as of next week, at the latest, hospitals will be shifting into a regularly scheduled lower gear to give overworked staffers a bit of a break. Also, negotiations on generic drug prices have stalled, according to the Globe and Mail. And there's growing pressure to delay the expansion of medical assistance in dying for people suffering from irremedial mental illness. While the government says it would be difficult to override that provision, both opposition parties say they would help because they think it also may be worth delaying. And last week, we talked to a group of senior psychiatrists at teaching hospitals who also want the delay while more safeguards and more protocols are put in place. What do you think about all of these things? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and John Wright, Executive VP at Maru Public Opinion. Hey, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, everyone. Should we start by the uh, least cheery subject first, and that being uh, delaying the expansion of MAID? Uh, Bill, have you heard anything from uh, CARP members on that? No, we we haven't heard a lot from them, although CARP has been involved with... uh, uh, with the whole made topic for many years. And although we're supportive of it in general, uh, we really take caution when we see groups like the, uh, like the Canadian psychiatrists, uh, asking us to slow down a little bit and, and make sure that there are good, uh, good guidelines in place. David, what, what's your take on this? Well, I think the uh, I agree with Bill and Carp did support this, providing there were guidelines and safeguards. But the program and the acronym is getting beaten up rather badly now in the in the public press. You have the uh, controversial TV commercial featuring a woman who had. Uh, opted for medically assisted death and um it, it, it wasn't out, a tv commercial it was a video a by, video i'm sorry yeah, uh, but, but, by a department store of all things actually my favorite department store and uh it was uh people it was a real head scratcher as to what exactly they were doing though uh, they showcase artisans and this and that so they yeah, they're, yeah, but, but but it was really like it was really uh, a head scratcher Exactly. Well, especially, unfortunately, afterwards, the stories came out that she had um, a very painful and serious but non-fatal disease, and she was really in despair because the health system couldn't give her a cure. So maybe if I uh, can't line up for a treatment, can I line up for this? So it was, at best, an ambiguous a troublesome thing. And then you have the story about the number of veterans coming forward and claiming that in lieu of uh, support such as ramps for their wheelchairs, that consultants or the, the, the care workers from Veterans Affairs were offering them made. Well, we I can't, think, we can't uh, help you with a ramp, but we can help you do this. So uh, that was controversial. Yeah, I, I think that uh, with the veterans thing, and I don't know, maybe I'm uh, I'm just uh, uh, echoing spin that it was one rogue consultant, but that story is horrific because there are several cases of veterans who say they didn't ask for it and they were offered it, John. Yeah, look, I, I, I can 
I don't know the ins and outs of the daily machinations on this. All I know is that when Canadians were polled on this years ago, and even the most uh, most robust polling recently, the issue was acceptable under, you know, made was acceptable if it was dealing with imminent death, not the quality of life. And that's a clear distinction we have to mean. I mean, you and I can, you know, people can argue that a terrible quality of life, if you have um, terrible depression or dementia or some other incapacitating illness that has to do with the quality of life, it it is something which has got to have a lot more safeguards put onto it. And I don't think it's anything that people really bought into uh, at the beginning of this. So I throw it back to the panel. I mean, the debate to me is really about the imminence of death versus the quality of life. And I think that right now most Canadians are on the side of those who are terminal or imminent death as opposed to simply having a bad quality of life discussion. Well, they they lifted that. It doesn't, uh, it, it was death in the foreseeable future and they they right. took that out. Yeah, I, I'm not arguing with that. It's just what, that's not what Canadians bought into in this. And, and they you know, can do whatever they want to it. But if you want to go through and say there are going to be some safeguards in this, mental health was not on the list in the first place and still remains offside to the majority of Canadians in this country to have this actually done. Uh, Bill? Yeah, I I guess what really concerns uh, me is the fact that uh, uh, if we're to believe, and I think we are, the the media reports, the the panel who looked at this and recommended uh, these changes looked at evidence from Belgium and the Netherlands uh, rather than talking to uh, the uh, Canadian psychiatrists and groups across the the country for uh, their decision and and that that really worries me in terms of the basis those countries have very different standards of uh, of quality and approaches to life than Canada does and if we're going to have decisions like this made, it better be a Canadian decision made by Canadian experts. That's a very good point, Bill. That's very interesting. David, do you see this becoming more of an issue? I do, because it's not the first time that a policy that may be um, supportable when you calmly analyze it um, takes on an almost brand-like quality that's way away from what was originally intended. And I think that's what's happening here with the... Um, and by the way, that's all I'm arguing. I'm not arguing the underlying rights and wrongs here. But when you have uh, this story of the veterans, when you have the uh, video of that uh, woman, you now have articles in the international press that Canada is the... Uh, assist medically assisted suicide capital of the world. You have people critiquing us, saying, "Well, we we can't provide health care, uh, so does this become an, an, an option?" And that particularly affects older Canadians who who will have that combo of um, closer death, maybe not imminent death, and uh, declining quality of life, particularly when you go back to the nursing homes, which. Uh, so all these are toxic factors that are spilling over onto this concept. And I think somebody's got to get a handle on that rather quickly to protect it. If, you, if it's a good thing to do, then it, it's got to be uh, kept safe from all these spillover effects that are very, very toxic and very troublesome. Hmm. Can, I, can I sort of ask a question? Let me cut to the chase here. Um, if, if I had parents who were... Uh, of sound age and mind and said, look, when I get to a certain point with dementia, if I'm not doing this or that, I want to, I want to have uh, assisted suicide. Okay, so I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that topic. I don't know what it's going to amount to, but I'm wondering what the panel is. I mean, it's, this is the sort of thing that I, I think we're actually at the threshold of. If we take a look at how many people especially women who are going to come down with dementia over the next two decades and are going to burden the healthcare system, um, break it probably as a result of that. Is this the route that we're prepared to go? Well, wait, 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 wait a minute, because the way things stand now, even with this, uh, you have to uh, 
say that you want it close to the event. There's no way, and and I know I have a caller who wants to ask that question, that you can say five years in advance or whenever, if I get dementia, I want an assisted death. That's not on. What the psychiatrists were saying things like, we don't have a a good set of guidelines to differentiate between somebody who is having a suicidal thought or moment, which apparently is common in a lot of mental illness and can be cured, and somebody who really has an irremediable, irremediable case. And they were, they were talking about things like that. But uh, I don't think that any of this ever affects dementia because you have to give your consent close to it. I guess the only thing, I hate to jump into this, but we're on a very slippery slope, and that's where I open this conversation by saying, look, we're going to either deal with it that if you're in a particular manner with immediate prospect of death versus the quality of life. And this is the gray zone that we're now into debating or discussing, because I, I think that that is the next topic. Someone who has um, deep um, depression, which runs in my family, um, you know, and I've seen people who are on the right medication get the right help, um, and they live great and prosperous lives thereafter. But certainly at the bottom of the well when they were there to ask for that sort of thing, I mean, begs a whole lot of questions when you go through this. So, I'm again, I'm, I think the public is really uncomfortable with this unless they, we really know whether the person is sound and can offer this, ask for this sort of thing, or they're going to be in a quality of life situation which may be bettered in other circumstances. Well, yeah, then that's why uh, my understanding, I talked to the head of that psychiatrist group, and that's that's what they want to sort out, too. And you know, not everybody living in every place in Canada is going to have access to the head psychiatrist at a teaching hospital, right? There have to be protocols, right? Um, I'm going to, before we move on to the next topic, I'm going to take a call from Jody, but I think we sort of answered your question. You're asking about advanced plans for medical assistance in dying. Yes, yes, I was, Libby. Uh, My fear is that currently you have to be able to communicate your wants and needs. My fear is, you know, if I have a stroke or through bodily injury of some kind, I'm unable to communicate. It just scares me. I was caregiver for my aunt for 20 years. She was in a nursing home. And the things I've seen, the suffering, that is not a life. That's not what I want. And I've seen people that are totally trapped in their bodies, people that have had a stroke, they can't speak, they can't say they're hurting, not hurting, other people laying in bed for years, bed sores all over them, not aware where they are, nothing. That's not a life. That's not what I want for my end. Well, How yeah, I-, I don't know that, that this particular thing would would address that anyway. Um what can I do? Like, I've written a letter, and I've put it together with my uh, note for my end-of-life care. It well, they, you can legal, certainly put a do-not-resuscitate. Uh, I did. I did. Well, I, I, that I in there. you know, you, you should ask a lawyer and not me, but I think, I think that's, that's about it. Jody. I'm going to let you go and see if anybody on the panel has more to say to you. Um, uh, guys, is there anything else that you have to say to Josie? Jody? No, I think you said it with the do not resuscitate thing. I mean, that's a policy where um, you're removing uh, life support as opposed to, hasten, you know, proactively uh, terminating somebody's life. And I think that those protocols are pretty uh, established, I believe. But um, the the other issue, I think John put his finger on it, you know, imminent death versus quality of life. And I think... It's enough to say that everybody's just still pretty uncomfortable with this. It's just not clear. And and just to clarify, you know, I think the original impetus for expanding some of this was that in certain cases of people, say, with a terrible neurological disease like ALS, uh, would actually request a death sooner than they would have because you have to be able to consent right at the time. So I think that 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 
was the thought behind expanding it originally, but uh, you know, I think it, it's been expanded beyond then, <laughs> beyond that. Anyway, let us move right. right along here. Uh, and uh, people, if you have uh, any more to say on this, uh, give us a shout. It's not going away as a topic. Um, so we're heading into the holidays. I think that, you know, I do see a few people wearing masks when I'm out and about. But I think for the most part, people are behaving in a pandemic over mode or pandemic not a big deal mode. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, every week I hear about somebody either uh, in the building here or somebody in my wider tennis family who's got COVID. And uh, we have these respiratory flus and, and hospitals really go on low gear as of, you know, next week or at the latest. Silence. David. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I, it's, it's a, a real fear that many of us have that we're, uh, uh, we're getting, we're uh, stopping protecting ourselves and and others and and uh, whether it's not wearing the mask or not get, getting uh, uh, flu shots, which uh, and the uptake is very low this year, especially in that middle age group of of eighteen to sixty four year olds, where it's where it's way down. So the opportunity to spread the flu among those who are are uh, most vulnerable. And what we don't seem to have gotten across to people is that uh, by wearing masks, by getting your flu shot, by taking uh, precautions, uh, even if you don't care about yourself, you're uh, protecting those around you, and especially those uh, seniors and others who are really uh, susceptible. Well, yeah, and it's it's interesting with the masking question. I was just talking to a friend of mine who lives out of town, and uh, her son is getting married here on New Year's Eve, and she was talking about uh, should there be masking at the wedding, and her daughter is bringing a very new baby, like three, the baby's around three months, and, and she wants people uh, to mask at the wedding so that her, her grandchild can be there. Uh, and I guess it's a a big conversation, but I bet most people are not masking at their weddings. Well, we are finding, and I get you know personal experience. We've just come through uh, uh, in my uh, in my non-work life, hobby life, uh, having a major production uh, at our local theater that we were responsible for, and we asked people if they would please wear masks when they when they came in, and we had masks available for who, who for people who didn't bring them, and well over ninety percent of the people who came in without masks were were happy to put them on when they were respectfully asked, and I think that's the message we have to to get out that it's uh, uh, the government aren't saying rules that you must, but uh, if you care about the people around you and you're requested to do it, you should do so. And I hope that that uh, wedding, uh, the, the wedding planners will do the same thing. Ask people when they come to please wear a mask and supply one uh, to them, and it should, uh, I, I bet it'll work. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to a concert tonight, Isaac Perlman, and we'll see how many people mask over there. Um uh, David, what's your sense? Well, I think that Bill has it right. I think that they they should be asked, and I think that uh, I, I'm in situations where sometimes I'm wearing my mask, sometimes I'm not. But I think part of the problem is that if people perceive that they've either already had it or they've already been vaccinated and that they don't have it now, be it a cold, be it flu, be it whatever, um, then they perceive, may I underline the word perceive, it may not be true, that they cannot give it to anybody else because they don't have it themselves. And um, I think that's a big inhibiting factor. So if we've already been over COVID, I'm not saying we have, if the worst is over, if the new um, uh, modifications or the new versions of COVID aren't as lethal as the first one, and we now have this sort of herd immunity, maybe not total, but much more widespread than before, it's easy to kind of get sloppy about it. And if you go by your day-to-day, you walk out the door and down the street, you're not wearing a mask, you go into 
of store A and you don't need a mask to go into store B and you do need a mask, you sort of get adaptive and it's, you know, either yes or no, but you kind of get sloppy with, you know, being very vigilant about it. I think that's just human nature. Yeah, and then sometimes just, I mean, I have them stuffed in every pocket and stuff and I still sometimes get stuck with no mask. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, I, I, John, I do you... Do you have any polling on on new attitudes to masking? No, I don't. Not within the last couple of months. Uh, I know what we found was that people were backing off of this on two bases. One is that there was no declared kind of, how can I put this? There was no presence in people's lives on a daily basis to indicate that this was a serious issue. You know, we were going through the stages of COVID for over two years, we had almost daily updates. Um, what we did, we had politicians at all levels of government and medical people who were saying how brutal it was, you should wear your mask. So everybody was pretty much masking, except for that 13% of people in this country who wouldn't do it. And people were compliant with getting the vaccines and moving forward. Once that stopped, it was a general view among 60 to 70% of the country that it was, it was your own you were on your own to make your own decisions and it was your own options. And that's basically what we've seen across the country where medical health and uh, political leaders have said, look, you know, it's up to you. It's not up to us to tell you when it's necessary, but you have a choice in the matter. So then put the mask on or go and get vaccinated when you should. Without the mandate, without that constant presence in people's lives, then the vigilant nature of it just falls away. The efficacy just drops away and that's why we've seen the huge drops in so many people doing this so i admit when i was on a plane the other day coming back from ottawa i thought i had lost my mask now i will mask when i go on a plane but i thought i lost it it ended up at the end of the flight being in my in another pocket but i have to tell you going on that flight to come back from ottawa to toronto the other day probably 10 percent of the people in that in that uh, plane were were masked so 90% were not. The air conditioning broke. The air circulation broke. We're sitting there with a bunch of coughing people, and I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, four days from now, I don't know what I'm going to have. So luckily I got through all of that without having contracted anything. But I also happened to be quad vaccinated, and I'd received my flu shot already. So I consider myself one of those who's pretty vigilant, who's done the stuff, and everybody in my family is. But even there on a plane, 90% of the people did not have masks, and they you know, would have left the plane and maybe three or four days later would have ended up with something. And that's what we're dealing with now in society. It's, it's basically now govern yourself accordingly. Well, and, and you mentioned the flu shot, so I just want to put it out there. It takes two weeks to take effect. So uh, people, uh, this week, if you don't have a flu shot, get one before Christmas. And, uh, you know, Christmas gatherings start before Christmas. So, right. if, I, if I can add, uh, Libby, that if people want to know more about the current uh, details around both the flu shots and COVID, r- right following our conversation today, uh, we're running a webinar with the CARP is with Dr. Ron Grossman, and he's going to be explaining the ins and outs of this entire topic. And if you just go to our CARP.ca website, you'll find a link to that uh, webinar immediately following our uh, discussion now. Okay, or or you can hang around here where we talk about some more stuff. Now, I see uh, there's a caller waiting who wants to blame the media for the lack of reporting. So we report the numbers that we get, and there are far fewer numbers that we are getting, both in terms of infections and in terms of deaths. And the numbers in terms of infections are basically basically extrapolations and guesses because uh, there's not very much testing going on, and the testing that's going on is, you know, your at-home test kit. So uh, it's wastewater and uh, other stuff like that. So that is the answer there. I'm looking at the clock, and it's time to go around uh, giving everybody uh, their uh, shot for what they want to leave us with, uh, starting with Bill. 
Well, I, I can't help but reiterate, reiterate what you said, uh, Libby, and that is, uh, uh, you know, it takes two weeks for your flu shot to take effect. So get it now in advance of the Christmas season if you don't have it uh, already. And uh, respect your, uh, uh, your family and friends and people who, who are at risk and wear a mask whenever you're in a group with them. Uh, John. Yeah, I I think this is the topic of choice for the next number of weeks, and we've got kids returning from university this week, and they haven't had a chance to have their flu shot, nor have they had their quad update that they should do. it. Um, we're basically cordoning off three days to make sure that they do, because we're going to be visiting grandparents in the next period of time, and it's absolutely crucial. So if you want to give a gift... For people this Christmas, make sure you get the shot. Make sure your loved ones do, too. That's a priority for us. And especially your young adult children. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, they're coming from university, which last time I checked, a lot of those university students haven't had those shots. So who knows what they're bringing even into this house for the short period of time. We're making sure that they're, they're going to get vaccinated. That's right. And university students tend to party. Uh, David Kravitz, last word to you. I just want to endorse what uh, Bill and John said, and I also want to remind listeners that before COVID, before COVID was even known, this would have been the traditional, quote, cough, cold, flu season, and we were urging people to get flu vaccines year after year after year. So this became the time of year where you were most susceptible to these kinds of uh, ailments, not even COVID. And so now throw the even slight possibility of COVID into the mix, why wouldn't you be doubly vigilant? And uh, so let's be doubly vigilant. Okay. Thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, John Wright, and David Kravitz. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Talk Bye. soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an ongoing boondoggle. And that is the construction of the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. We had a leak about more cost overruns and more delays. And uh, Metrolink saying they don't think that the people constructing it have any idea or any plan for finishing it. Very interesting. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Do you live or drive near Eglinton Avenue in Midtown Toronto? Well, I do, as do many people I know, and there seems to be no end in sight to the construction of the overdue and over-budget Eglinton Crosstown LRT. And what we have all been experiencing anytime we get near there was confirmed by a leaked document last week, which showed that the provincial transportation agency, Metrolinx, believes that the construction consortium, and that is a public-private partnership, a P3 building the line, lacks a, quote, credible plan toward the completion of the project. Uh, To me, uh, that's a nice way of saying they have no idea what they're doing. And as we reported last week, two city councillors, Mike Cole and Josh Matlow, are demanding a public inquiry. Meanwhile, the mayor and the provincial transportation minister says Toronto people should just remain patient. So what do you think? Are you feeling patient? Are you okay with just throwing more and more and more money at this? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Ward 12, Toronto St. Paul's Councillor Josh Matlow and Ward 8, Eglinton Lawrence Councillor Mike Cole and Maureen Sirwa, Chairman of the Eglinton Way BIA and President of the Toronto Association of Business Improvement Areas. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hello, Libby. Okay, let us begin with you, Mike. So what made you call for a public inquiry? I mean, to be fair, those things always take a really long time, maybe longer than the construction of the LRT. 
Well, Libby, they don't take long. Look, Ottawa just did one. It took them a couple of months, and they got to the bottom of that boondoggle in Ottawa. So that's a, a bogus argument about this. Taking, you know, what's taking time is 11 years to build this boondoggle, and they're covering it up. They're covering up the fact they don't know how to fix the problem. Hmm. There's a gigantic cover-up going on. And the provincial government, Metrolinx, Mulroney, the transportation minister, they're all covering up this incredible waste of taxpayers' dollars and the devastation it's causing to businesses all across. You know, six BIAs are being destroyed. Uh, and 50,000 homeowners can't get out of their driveway. That's the thing that's got to be uncovered, and we need to get some answers. Uh, okay, so Josh, do we know what that problem is? Well, you know, the, the only reason that we even have verification of what a mess it's become is because, as Mike said, a whistleblower sent us uh, a leaked document um, that, that demonstrated that there are a whole, like, there's a litany of failures. You know, it, the, the, the cost has ballooned yet another billion dollars. The, uh, they, they don't know how they're going to transfer, uh, the platform at Young and Eglinton. They're, they're still not making as much progress as they should have on the station box. They don't know how to run the trains in certain curves. There's all sorts of stuff that they haven't resolved. They haven't figured out. And they have not been transparent with the public, um, about not only what their challenges are, but, you know, they first announced that it would be completed back in 2020, then 2021, then 2022. And now it is very evident is they have no idea when residents and businesses are going to see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Um, now, the real-life consequences of this multi-year delay is that we have businesses, business owners, and their employees who not only are struggling, but many have lost their livelihoods because of this, and they're just hanging on by a thread. And that's why they need real support, real financial support from the government, as Councillor Cole and I are requesting, but also residents who are not just complaining about traffic. Their neighborhoods are literally dysfunctional, and they have just been treated like collateral damage by this government and this provincial transit agency. And it's time for answers. It's time for real financial support. And it's, you know, and the reason we're asking for a public inquiry is not just to get answers about Eglinton, but we're also aware that the Ontario line, other provincial projects are about to be constructed. And we don't want to see the same boondoggle happen on all these other projects as has happened so evidently on Let's- Eglinton. Let's bring in Maureen Sirwa. Hi, Maureen. Uh, I'm assuming that you have been lobbying for some compensation for the businesses. Uh, how has that been going? Well, thanks for having me, and I really do appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, on this matter. Um, with regards to compensation, uh, Metrolinx has made it clear right from the beginning that they would not provide direct compensation to businesses, and um, I I, with my colleagues in the in the BIAs, and for the businesses that are not represented by BIAs, this is wrong. There should be some direct compensation to the businesses who have suffered um, losses through the many years of this construction, and the delay of the completion of the line is only going to um, amplify the loss to these businesses because businesses need to have their customers uh, able to come and shop or attend their medical appointments or go to a restaurant. They need accessibility and they need parking and they need to have the street clean and ready to serve. So there needs to be compensation. And we've learned through the pandemic that there are ways to compensate businesses who have been impacted financially by um, the disaster of COVID. So there are ways to compensate businesses, but there is not the political will to do so. Well, um, is it possible to get that compensation from different levels of government that might be more amenable to it? Well, this is a provincial um, yeah, I know. Um, undertaking, so that, that that's the first line. There has been some money given to uh, the BIAs towards streetscape beautification going forward post-construction, but that money is tied to those projects. 
However, businesses need direct compensation, and that needs to be addressed. And the other thing is there needs to be transparency. Businesses need to know when the heck is this thing going to be done so that they can plan their businesses accordingly. It's, it's, we cannot stay in the dark on this. Hmm. Um, Josh, uh, what's yeah. going on with the city and, and with the mayor? Um, do you see anything behind him just saying, let's be patient, we'll get it done? I was very disappointed by Mayor Tory's uh, reaction to Councillor Cole and my uh, request on behalf of the businesses and the communities. Um, you know, he he he, he dismissed uh, uh, you know our our advocacy on their behalf, and and frankly, you know, the strong mayor, <laughs> like if he really wants to be strong for the communities that are being affected by Metrolinx's debacle, uh, he should be willing to support our efforts, like was done in Ottawa to get to the bottom of what has gone wrong so that this doesn't happen again and to advocate, as Maureen was saying, for these businesses who have been taking on the burden for the rest of us. I mean, all of us are going to benefit from improved transit eventually, whenever that day comes. But these businesses are the ones that are making these sacrifices and need our support. So I'm very disappointed with Mayor Tory. But, you know, even with the strong mayor legislation and all these things going on, everything seems to be working toward the provincial interest, whatever Doug Ford wants. Doug Ford would love us to just sort of, you know, wipe this, you know, uh, under, the, under the cupboard and forget about it. We're not going to allow that to happen. Um, and uh, and I hope that the mayor will see uh, that he needs to be on 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 the side of the public on this. Mike Cole, where exactly are these 50,000 homeowners who can't get out of their driveways and, and what, if anything, is being done about that? Well, uh, these uh, homeowners have been held hostage in their own homes. They can't get out of their driveways. People going wrong way up one way streets, uh, the trucks, the noise, uh, and uh, Uber won't even uh, come to the area anymore. You know, sorry, where? Between Keel Street and uh, basically Mount Pleasant. Uh, you can't get up and down those streets. Maybe try going up, uh, you know, the Upper Village or try and going around Bathurst and Eglinton anywhere between 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock at night or in the morning. It's, it's just beyond the pale. You know, we've been out in the streets with people. We've been protesting, but again, we're just totally stonewalled by Metrolinx, who uh, somehow is uh, immune from public opinion. They're spending billions of dollars of public money. You know, it's now reached $12.8 billion on this project that was supposed to cost $5.6 billion. Where the hell is the money gone? That's the other thing why we need an inquiry. Where's the money gone? We gotta stop this cover-up. Uh, and so, when you say they can't get out of their driveways, you're talking about traffic, yeah, not, not construction did. vehicles or anything like that. Oh, both, both what? cement trucks, front-end loaders, uh, uh, you know, I mean, dumpsters, you name it. Plus all the uh, motorists who try to avoid Eglinton, so they go up and down the side streets all day. You know, it is just maddening. Uh, you know, people are literally out in the streets uh, in fights with uh, the, these uh, motorists that are blocking their driveways every day. Can you imagine going through that? I mean, we're lucky there hasn't been, you know, uh, physical confrontations, although there have been a few. But it is just uh, maddening for people trying to essentially get in out of their, their, their homes. Josh, was that you trying to jump in? Yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I just wanted to really support something that Mike was saying, like to give a, a concrete example. In, in, the, in the Cedarvale neighborhood in particular, um, because of its, you know, it, it's kind of in between where the Allen is and where everybody else is either coming or going, it seems. Um, because of, uh, you know, the lane closure that was there for so long and the challenges on Eglinton, a lot of people have avoided Bathurst and Eglinton, and they go right through the neighborhoods. And so the reality is, and this is why I said people aren't just complaining about traffic like it's normal. Like, literally, as Mike said, like three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon, traffic is often backed up blocks to a point where you cannot go in and out of your own driveway. Um, it, it's dysfunctional. It's not. It's not just a. It's not just a. Uh, you know, a difficulty. It's literally impossible to function. So, 
you know, what, and by the way, that's happening in other parts of the city too. Absolutely, I'm just giving <laughs> you sort of like a an example, yeah. right, of like where it's happening. And and so it's one thing if this was going on for ten years, but now the delays keep going on and on and on, and people are just feeling like they're never going to wake up from this nightmare, and that's just not reasonable. Okay, we've got to take another break. People, I'm going to give the numbers out again. Uh, I'd like to hear what you think of this. I mean, honestly, uh, I was driving on College Street this morning, and I had just been there a few days ago, and suddenly there were more new constructions full of uh, blocked lanes, everything literally gridlocked. It's at a point, I think, where you basically can't go anywhere. People can't do their business. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We're talking to City Councilors Josh Matlow and Mike Cole about their demand for a public inquiry into the cost overruns and delays with the Eglinton uh, Crosstown LRT, something that... Carolyn Mulrooney, the transportation minister, doesn't want, and neither does the mayor, apparently. So do uh, let us know what you think, and we'll be right back after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been talking about the debacle on Eglinton Avenue with the cost overruns and the long delays for the building of the Crosstown LRT. And this follows a leaked document from a whistleblower, uh, and it's from Metrolinks, the provincial agency, which says that he, Metrolinks, doesn't think that the people building this thing have any plan for how to finish it. Uh, We have two city councillors calling for a public inquiry, and I want to hear from you. Let us go to David in Toronto. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi, so I live in the Bayview and Eglinton area, and you know, we've been affected by this traffic for Lord knows how long. It appears as though some of the intersections are starting to be fully operational, um, but the no one is making that information available to the drivers that are taking the shortcuts through. So once somebody takes a shortcut, if they perceive that it's going to be faster for them, they're going to keep on doing that probably even 10 years after this thing is finished. Um, and you're way on the end of it. Uh, Councillors of uh, uh, Eglinton and Bayview? Yeah, so um, I noticed that just last week they finished paving Mount Pleasant. They have to paint the lines to make the intersection fully operational. Um, they finished, the city has finished doing their work on the, uh, the bridge at Leslie. So that is now full two lanes going both ways. Um, you know, some people just don't know about this stuff and they're taking, they're still doing their shortcuts. Okay, but thanks, they, David. Uh, is, is that the same project, Josh, or is that something different? Yeah, and actually, David raises a really good point. And like an example at Bathurst Neglington is uh, something that, you know, I'm asking the city's transportation staff to do is, um, you know, as Metrolinx allows for lanes to open and the left turn lane to open, for example, that they should be putting signage way down the street, alerting drivers to the fact that they can now turn left, that they should put, you know, lengthily advanced left uh, signals, make it as easy as possible. Because David's point is so true that drivers, like all, like, like all of us, we take the path of least resistance. But if we don't know that using their materials is a better choice than taking the neighborhoods, then we'll continue taking the neighborhoods. So we want to get people out of the habit of going through the neighborhoods. And I think David's point is is absolutely correct, whether it be Bathurst and Eglinton, Mount Pleasant and Eglinton, or Bayview or elsewhere. Hmm. Let us hear from Clay in Ajax. Hi, Clay. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. I've been fortunate. I haven't been in the West End of Toronto for three or four years. But even back then, with that rapid transit, it was a nightmare. Once upon a time, Libby, they had a certain date they had to finish a job. If they weren't done in time, then they had to pay a penalty. I mean, like right now, there are $7 billion and something over budget. And how far beyond the expected date are they out? 
I mean, just think what that $7 million could do for our homeless people. But, I mean, it's crazy, and there's no, there's no end in sight now, Libby. Okay, thanks for that, Clay. I don't recall when there were financial penalties for not completing a job on time for the government. Uh, th- that's another question, Mike. Why are there no financial penalties? Well, Libby, they've been in court. The uh, contractor, uh, which is a consortium of three or four uh, major uh, construction companies called Crosslinks and Metrolinks, have been in court spending tens of millions of dollars fighting each other, uh, and, and uh, it's gone to a judge. They made awards. This has also gone on for five years. So the lawyers have gotten very rich uh, going to court uh, handling these uh, complaints. Uh, the problem is there's Metrolinks is not an accountable board. It is a remote, isolated board that has no public meetings. Uh, they rule the roost, and they've got a blank check from the Ford government to do whatever they want. And they're the ones that should be calling them up. Uh, Minister Mulroney, uh, Premier Ford should be saying, where's the money gone? You're way, you're three, four years over time, uh, they're supposed to be completed. You're $7 billion over budget. For some reason, they don't call Metrolinks to account. It's the biggest mystery of all time. You call them on the carpet, and that's what we want to do. We want to say, what have you been doing uh, for, for all these years, and how many more years are you going to do this? And uh, why in the hell can't you compensate uh, the business owners uh, that have gone through this already, and how much longer are they going to go through it? So someone's got to bring Metrolinks to the carpet. And we're trying to do that. Josh and I, at the city of Toronto, we're trying to do that, and uh, we hope we'll get the support of other councillors. Uh, because at uh, Queen's Park, they're never sitting, sitting there anyways. They don't ask any questions, it seems. They get a free ride there. So we're going to have to bring them uh, to carpet at City Hall. Maureen Sirwad, do you have a sense of numbers of how many businesses are on the edge? Well, a lot of the businesses are privately owned, so we would not have anything other than anecdotal um, reporting. But yeah. you hear from businesses that business is down. You hear from businesses that their customers um, aren't coming in because they can't find uh, parking, because the, uh, the workers who are working on the transit line are taking all the parking. And uh, so that's impacting their businesses as well, and maybe their business isn't as accessible. So we are hearing anecdotal uh, reporting from businesses that business is down. So that's making it very difficult. And without uh, an end in sight, people just don't know where they're where they're going to go next. They don't know. They they can't plan. They have nothing to hang on to. And what about landlords? There are. Have you heard from them? Well, you know, there are vacancies on uh, Eglinton. You don't have to, you can see with your own eyes that the vacancy rate is there. And how is a landlord going to rent to a prospective tenant if there's no uh, end in sight as to when the construction will be completed? Uh, I'm sure most business owners would be reluctant to sign a lease without some kind of... um, thought as to when this construction is going to be completed and the the street will be uh, restored to its um, usual vitality. So, um, you know, things are opening up a little bit, as your caller mentioned. Um, Some of the intersections are opening up, but we're not there yet, and some of the businesses are stuck behind hoarding and fences and and so on, and they're not um, able to serve their customers. Okay. It's Mike Cole. Yep. Uh, uh, last year, I counted 130 small businesses that were closed between Keel Street and uh, Young Street. 130 that were closed. That was last year that I counted myself. Mm-hmm. And who knows what the number is this year? If you, uh, Mike, what, if you do another count, of course, let us know. So, uh, yeah. go ahead. Where does this leave well, yes. us? The, uh, the closures are already happened. And, you know, it's not even the landlords. The real sufferers are the business tenants. You know, because the landlords will make money in the long run because property values go up when you build a subway. But the business tenants, 
They're the nameless. Yeah, you know what, Mike? I'm going to tell you. I have I have people in my in my neighborhood, and these are small building owners. And I I have tenants that this is their retire not tenants, um, business owners, property owners, and they own the shop below, and then they might rent an apartment above, and this is their income. So it does impact uh, some of the property owners very very strongly. So I, oh, we're sure. not talking we about the big yeah. property owners. We're talking about these these people that have bought small buildings, and this is their income. And if they can't rent that building, they're not making that income. Yeah, but I'm just saying, is sure they've suffered the property owners, the small ones. But again, others are just out on the street. You know, there was one of the, the local shopkeepers in Little Jamaica. There, she had to resort. Josh knows her well, Debbie. She had to resort to selling fruit on the street corner. Because she had uh, big construction trailers in front of her store well, for uh, three years. Try well, doing that for a living. Wow. I'm looking at the clock. It's time to start wrapping things up. Um, Josh, where does this go from here? Well, the only place it can go is getting Metrolinks to you know, disclose what their plans are to ensure that they uh, they get the job done and they get transit built and people's lives can start being restored. Uh, but, you know, the reason that Mike and I are asking our colleagues um, this week to support uh, moving forward with the public inquiry and providing, you know, reasonable ways for the province to support businesses and provide compensation is because um, we want these businesses to be able to benefit from the very transit that the rest of us will eventually, and we want them to survive long enough to do so. And ultimately, if we don't have answers and clarity about what's gone wrong, then there's no question that Metrolinx in the province will repeat those mistakes, and that's not acceptable to us. Uh, Mike, uh, last uh, 15 seconds to you. So what are you exactly going to be asking your colleagues to do this week? Please support a call to bring Metrolinx to account. When is it going to be completed? We want to ask them, and they should be there, Mulroney included. When are you going to complete it? Where did the $12.8 billion go? And what is wrong that you can't fix the problem? If you can't fix it, we're saying we'll bring someone else to fix the problem. Right now, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Okay, on that note, we've got to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Josh Matlow, Mike Cole, and Maureen Sirwa. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.